Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And I'm Julie. And today we are diving into space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Microbi Gals, its three-month mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new microbial life and new understandings of our own world, and to boldly go where no podcast has ever gone before. Wow. It's exciting. So exciting. No? No one else is doing the original Star Trek theme song? Probably in public domain by this point, right? I don't know about that. Anyways, if you haven't figured it out, today we are diving into the world of science fiction and sharing some of the greatest micro moments in the science fiction world from TV shows to movies to books. But before we begin, I just want to talk a little bit about the relationship between fact and fiction. It really is a perfect marriage intertwined in time, at odds but forever connecting, impacting, and changing the other. Fiction inspires us to find facts, to question our reality, to believe there might be something better or sometimes worse to come or that has passed. Facts guide our livelihoods, but they are not always the truths we try to hold them up to be. New science, new inventions, new data has a way of taking facts of the day and rendering them comical thoughts to look back on. Like when people thought the Earth was the center of the universe or when the early 20th century doctor would prescribe medicinal cigarettes for asthma. That's right. But with new facts, those old facts become fiction. And while science and fiction may seem to be on the opposite side of the spectrum, science fiction, the genre, has always eagerly intertwined hope, science, and the dreams into fantastical universes that seem based in the sometimes biased by our reality. So today, as we've said, my micro friends, we aim to show you some of the biggest micro moments in science fiction. First, let's just say we love almost all of what we are going to talk about. We are definitely nerds and we are going to be raising and waving our nerd flag pretty hard today. And we do not intend this to be a smashing of any of these TV shows, movies or books. But we do find it a great learning opportunity to connect the science fiction world with our own science facts of today. And we hope to showcase the science to highlight the creativity of humanity, but ultimately to celebrate science fiction as a fantastical way to imagine a better future. Oh, and as a final note, uh, we will no doubt be spoiling some things today, some episodes, some movies, some books of old, but... Most of what we're telling about is probably 50 years old. There's a few that are a little bit more recent, and those ones we'll try not to spoil as much. So if you're worried about it, why don't you hit pause and go into the show notes where we'll say what we're going to be talking about. And if you haven't read it, listen to it, go read it, come back and listen with the full knowledge we're about to lay on you. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent idea. Although I will say, if you haven't seen some of the things that we might say might intrigue you and uh, you'll be looking for them as you watch or read whatever it is that we're spoiling. So it actually might enhance your viewing of it as well. So that's another thing to think about. Yeah, not all micro moments in today's episodes 
give a huge spoiler to the actual episode that they come from. But some of them do. The first one I'm going to talk about, definitely the whole ending is a micro moment. Did you guys have fun with this one? Yeah, I actually learned and I think it will enhance the next time I watch Star Wars or Star Trek um, with some of the things that I, I looked up today. It's it's kind of interesting when you do some of this research. It's out there. Like people have researched these sort of some of these made up kind of things and, and they have like seriously got a lot of information on it's pretty wild Mm, so we're not the only crazy ones trying to mix science and science fiction nope but we're gonna do it in a more interesting microbial way so i think it's gonna be cooler yeah i had a lot of fun myself i think one of the funniest things is we'll be getting into it but i watched some of the original star trek and just the campiness of that series oh it was so campy so campy so campy don't you say anything bad about the original you'll have to answer to me (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we love it. We've watched all of them, but man, it's just sometimes those 1960 sets and visual effects, it's hard. Some of that dialogue that they had written was pretty bad. I'm not going to lie. It made me laugh. I know I love a good excuse to sit on my couch all afternoon and watch Star Wars and think about microbes. So I'm really excited about this one, too. You're welcome. <laughs> so are we ready to begin? Do it. Sure, what are we going to start with? So I I think we are doing this more or less in chronological order. So I think we have, what, eight? I think we have eight in total. We'll see if this ends up being a two-parter. It might even be a three-parter, depending on how well we get into this and how much we want to discuss or just nerd out a little bit. But we'll see. We'll see where we go. But I think we're doing mainly chronological order. Our first one is a book. This happened long before the invention of movies and television and Hollywood itself. This actually happened sometime um, not far after when we had Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch kind of defining germ theory, which I think is really interesting. We're going back to the late 19th century to 1897, when the father of science fiction wrote his most, yeah, it's probably his most famous book he ever wrote. And that, of course, would be H.G. Wells' 1897 book about the Martians coming, The War of the Worlds. Let's start by jumping in our DeLorean and heading all the way back to 1897, where the first micro moment of sci-fi takes place with the father of science fiction, H.G. Wells. And we will most certainly be dishing out some of the spoils here, as I've already said, but this book is over a century old and has been turned into a radio broadcast that has um, that had Americans scared out of their wits. You can find it on YouTube. I did so. It was pretty entertaining. And it also has been created into not one, but two movies, I believe. At least. One, uh, the most most recent one being starring Tom Hanks. Tom Tom, Cruise. Tom Cruise. Not Tom Hanks. He's my grandpa. He's America's grandpa. And also, I want to say you probably made some fan fiction writer happy. You just did Back to the Future and into H.G. Wells. Yeah, buddy. This, This whole thing is just riddled with pop culture references. Because we can, and I will. Anywho... Oh, and then the other thing is Universal is still using this plane crash that happened in that so-so movie to still make money from it. So we're, I think we're pretty clear to make some spoilers here because if you haven't read this book or seen the movies or listened to the broadcast or been to Universal, then perhaps you should. 
I don't know. Open I mean, a book. This story is such into the zeitgeist right now. Like, how could you not have heard it by now? Exactly. But I always forget the ending of this movie. Um, I think because it's so anticlimactic, but the ending in the movie is a micro moment. It's very true. Yeah, so let's dive into it. The War of the Worlds is all about a Martian invasion. But the story begins some years before this actual invasion with some scientific observation that Mars is a bit closer to Earth than normal, and people report seeing a series of flashing lights. Until one morning, a falling star appears to plummet from the sky. But it wasn't a star, but a large cylindrical object. It began to draw crowds. It opens and the Martians emerge. And they do not come in peace, but immediately decide to incinerate those around them. The army came, war pursued, but the humans are no match for the Martians' heat rays and black smoke of death, which is so sounds so like, I don't know, 1950s Martians attacks, even though we're in the late 1970s. Oh, I'd say even like earlier, black smoke of death, that's the perfect amount of campiness right there. Yeah. Anywho, people flee the city in terror, desperately trying to survive the unending attack from an alien they know nothing about. The aliens are quick to take London and all believe humanity is all but certainly doomed. But suddenly, it appears the torment is over. The aliens have died? They were slain by the putrefactive and disease bacteria against which the systems were unprepared. That's a quote from the book. Really? Yep. Here's another quote from the book. These germs of disease have taken toll of humanity since the beginning of things. But by virtue of the natural selection, we have developed resisting power. But there are no bacteria on Mars. When I watched them, they were irrevocably doomed. By the toll of a billion deaths, man has bought his birthright of the Earth, and it is his against all comers. When was this book written again? 1897. Okay. Still, for that time, like, talking about evolution or evolving with these diseases, that's pretty... Good for thinking or knowledge about the subject matter. Yeah, I was really surprised because this is not long after Darwin came out with his theory of evolution. It's not long after Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur connected bacteria and um, infectious diseases. Do we know if H.G. Wells was a scientist of any sort or was he was he interested in it or was it based on fact at all? I did not look too much into his life. But I assume he was interested at least to some point to get a science knowledge, but I'm not sure what his full background is. Hmm. So I chose this quote because it has a lot of different elements of science in it, some of which I like and some of which I, I don't like as much. But I do think it is really remarkable that we have this sentence come out of 1897 book. And it definitely plays, as John said, into that entanglement of species evolution, of adaptation, of the constant arms race we have with some of the foul-playing microbial friends. While some microbes try and survive, they end up triggering our immune system and we end up getting sick. We call these microbes pathogens. And throughout time, these pathogens change to overcome our immune system. And our immune system then in turn changes to help us fight off the pathogen. So it's this constant back and forth. This is both a day-to-day -day endeavor, as our immune cells are constantly identifying microbes and binning them into not okay or okay groups. But this is also throughout evolutionary time, as H.G. Wells is sort of getting at in this quote. 
We are the product of generations of immune systems that were more adept to handle pathogens of the day than their fellow brethren that may have fallen to one pathogen or another. Pathogens, as we've talked about on this podcast before, such as mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is the causal agent of tuberculosis, and the causal agent of the New England Vampire Trial, which also came out with an article recently that we should talk about. Oh, really? An article just came out about it? Yeah. Did you read that one, Julie? Yeah, I did. That was really interesting that they are... Uh, well, when I read, they are able to extract like the DNA from these really old bones and reconstruct the person's face. Um, and so they're calling uh, this person the vampire because it's uh, the bones were found in a, a skull and crossbones kind of thing, which is common was common for people who they suspected of vampirism. Yeah, and this was this was actually a person we talked about on the podcast yeah. a few weeks ago when we talked about the New England Vampire Trials. This was the one in the 1990s in Connecticut where these kids stumbled upon a body and they found th- this vampire burial. Yeah, then they figured out what he looks like. Yeah, so they were able to take DNA and kind of reconstruct his whole face and almost figure out who he was. Did they like dip into like ancestry testing at all? Yes, they did. It sounded like they went as far as they could, and and they they think it's a pretty good guess of who the person is and who his son is. And yeah, it was really interesting. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, so maybe we'll link that in the show notes or make a little post about it because it was sort of fascinating. It's not exactly a micro moment, but it does stem from a micro moment that we've talked about on this show. Anyways, pathogens like mycobacterium tuberculosis, the causal agent of tuberculosis, has been plaguing humanity not only since the 1900s, 1800s, but really for centuries and likely for centuries to come. And this is one of our constant arms race we have with certain bacteria. So there is this tit-for-tat between microbes and humans, this healthy arms race, if you will, for survival between two vastly different domains of life. But it's not just humans. This exists in nearly everything, and perhaps everything. As a scientist, I'm 100% trained to never say 100% on anything. Right. It's never a certainty. Mm -hmm. But likely everything has at least one other organism that can be considered a pathogen to them. We'll talk a little bit later on about plant pathogens, as well as some other pathogens, I believe, too. So this idea that by virtue of this natural selection, we have developed resisting power, as the quote says, has some truth to it. And you know what they say, what doesn't kill you mutates and tries again. I love that quote. (laughs) It's a good quote. Or cripples you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now for what I don't like so much about this quote. So he opens up with these germs of disease. First off, I hate the word germs. I think this phrase might have a nice little ring to it, but germs is definitely not a nice word for microbes. But on a different note, it's absolutely absurd, in my opinion, to say that a sentient being from a different planet with the capability of not only space travel, but also with the destructive power to bring mankind to their knees, did so without ever coming in contact with bacteria and without having their own bacteria on their planet. That's just not possible. That was the argument I was going to make. Mm-hmm. Certainly, one could say that microbes that were on Mars living with the Martians may be quite different from the microbes we have on Earth and classify as bacteria here. 
But I'm pretty sure what is meant in the statement is not that, not that there's different microbes, but that this was the first time that they ever came in contact with bacteria. I am a firm believer that no life exists without their own microbial friends and enemies for that matter. So the Martians would have no doubt their own bacteria or other microbial beings, which they have adapted to live with and fight off with their own unique immune system. They probably even evolved from single cell organisms as well. Yeah, if evolution on Earth happened on other planets, it would definitely mean that they would all stem from a single, single-celled single organism. It makes sense. I mean, that's the most simplest form of life, and then you build into more complex beings mm-hmm. from there. That being said, our bacteria may have the capabilities to invade, infect, and kill these enemies, but at the same time, this is not what their goal is. These microbes would not try to infect these aliens, and in fact, they probably may not be able to do anything on aliens if their anatomy is totally different from ours. They wouldn't even cause an immune response. Yeah, microbes are just microbing. They're just trying to live every day. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, just like humans... All they really need to do is eat and poop and reproduce. All of life is, has the same sort of goals. And unless the Martians' anatomy were very close to our own, including their immune system, I don't know if another organism on our planet is likely to have the ability to reproduce or eat or poop inside an alien. The environmental conditions within the Martian would have to be adequate for the bacteria for their own survival. If the Martian has a very different internal temperature, they may not be, it may be too hot or it may be too cold for certain microbes that live and have adapted inside our own human ecosystems. And we even see that on Earth, like a lot of zoonotic infections we can't get, but that doesn't mean they won't evolve. Yeah, Yeah, there's definitely transferring between species, but a lot of times we do not have, we cannot catch a cold from our dogs um, or from other animals because our immune systems are different, our pathogens are different, our internal body temperatures are different. And in addition, a lot of sickness actually occurs because your immune system triggers a response. A lot of times when we have fevers, it's our immune system that's causing you to have a fever. It's your um, immune cells building up in the back of your throat that's causing you to cough. And so a lot of the symptoms that we have are actually from our own immune systems. On the flip side, the Martians would also have to have an immune system that can identify the bacteria, bin it as either not okay or okay, and then trigger an immune system. And if they've never seen a bacteria, as H.G. Wells puts it, I don't know if their immune cells would be able to understand what flagella is or to understand what have any of those immune responses to any of the metabolites from bacteria. I mean, just as a quick side note, we, there, there is a condition that's called cytokine storm where your immune system releases these chemicals and you more or less go into shock. It's like an over ex- overreaction. And they think that may have happened in the Spanish flu of 1918. And there's a cancer treatment out there that they actually purposely induce your immune system to go into this cytokine storm to actually attack the cancer. So, yeah, if Martians do have bacteria and they do stem from single cell and are similar to ours, there is a chance that our bacteria might be close enough to their immune system that there would be an actual communication event that occurs and cause a response. 
But if the Martians have never seen bacteria, then I don't know if their immune cells would be able to identify them. So just like how by the toll of a billion deaths, man has bought his birthright of the Earth's, so has the microbes that we share this wonderful planet with. I like that quote, bought the birthright. Bought his birthright of the Earth. Finally, I just like to say major props to Mr. H.G. Wells, the father of science fiction, for not only showing the limitations of mankind, but the limitless potential of our microbial friends and choosing microbes as the savior of all mankind in his greatest science fiction book he ever wrote. That's all I have on H.G. Wells and the War of the Worlds. Have you guys, did you guys have to read H.G. Wells, War of Worlds? Did you have to listen to the radio broadcast? Not while I was in school, no. No, I didn't have to either. I think we we listened to the radio broadcast in middle school. It's actually kind of scary. It is. It's it's kind of weird, like how like they have a little news bulletin and they shift back to music, and then another news bulletin, the music. Yeah, he did a great job making it seem like an actual radio broadcast. But can you imagine actually sitting around a radio and listening to it? Like, it's just outside our imagination these days because we're we're so visual. Yeah. I mean, it, you can listen to it and I can definitely see how people just lost it. I think at the very beginning, they say this is a reenactment and not based on reality. But if you're listening to an hour long radio show and you come in five minutes late and you're listening to that. Yeah, I can see how you would just go crazy. And you don't have like computers to go look at it or like go check Twitter, see what the news is up. Nobody's posted it on Facebook. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's it's mad to think about. Anyways, let's go to a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, let's talk a little farther in the future here. In 1977, Star Wars came out and we were inter- introduced to a whole new galaxy. We heard about the Force. And they talk about the force and it's it's kind of a spiritual thing and they don't really spend a lot of time explaining the force until in 1999, they came out in uh, with Phantom Menace and we started hearing about these microbes that lived in symbiosis with everything in the galaxy and the number of these microbes that were in the blood of a being determined how trainable they might be as a Jedi. And those microbes are called midi-chlorians, which was not met by a lot of love by the Star Wars community. A lot of people kind of liked the Force being the sort of this ethereal, mysterious thing. But for whatever reason, they decided to science it up and introduce microbes into the Star Wars universe. But microbes are ethereal and mysterious. Well, yeah, but I think there's a difference. Like when you name them, it becomes sort of a different type of mystery, right? I mean, yes, but still to think that microbes can make you a better Jedi. I dig it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of people hated it. It was not a popular addition to the Star Wars canon by any stretch of the imagination, I don't think. I think a lot of people really did not like it. I'm going to go with that's because they didn't understand the superpowers of microbes. Well, and these are kind of interesting little, um, I I couldn't really think of anything to kind of compare it to. We don't have anything 
that at least that we know of at this point that exists as a physical thing in our bodies that determines how much force or I don't spirituality or like I don't know what to compare it to, but it sounded like the Jedi had been doing these blood tests. And that's how they determine who has a lot of concentration of midi chlorians in their blood. Because the more, the more you have, the stronger in the force you could become and be able to channel that force. But it took training. So just because you had a bunch of these midi chlorians didn't mean you were, you know, going to absolutely be a a powerful Jedi or Sith because they had they used the same thing. You know, they had the midi chlorians also, but they used it for for bad stuff. Or that's kind of the the way we look at it. The the Jedi are the good and the Sith are the bad. But other people argue about which one was good slash bad. But I think the interesting thing about these midi-chlorians is that they are considered sentient beings themselves. And so they are a life force. And some would argue that the life came from the midi-chlorians, but the the actual microbes would live inside all beings. And so if you were lucky enough to have a lot of them, you would be able to sense what those sentient, sentient beings that were living inside of you in in symbiosis, they would be able to show you things and have you do things. And you'd be able to, some say, see the future and some have, you know, ability to see things that are, you know, like, aren't there yet or are in the dark or so it's, I think it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. But like I said, not super popular putting that science microbe moment on the force. What do you guys think? I like to think of it sort of like our gut microbiomes. Like we don't really understand our gut microbiomes, but if we can bring balance to our gut microbiomes, then we can bring balance to our lives as our understanding that the gut microbiomes are related to all sorts of different diseases. And if we can unlock the potential and find out which microbes we need or which microbes we need to get rid of, we can reduce risk to a number of mental diseases or uh, neurological diseases or even just obesity. So I think there's a lot of power in the microbiome and sort of nurturing the symbiosis that we have with our microbial friends and our in our guts and on our skin. Yeah, I think it's what are your thoughts about like having a sentient microbe be inside of you? Well, I don't know how I feel about it now. At the time, I actually did hate the whole midichlorian things because the the thought was, you know, the more training you did, the stronger the force you would become. And then all of a sudden, it feels like, oh, your strength or presence in the force is a predetermined thing that is unwavering. But that was not always true. Wasn't Luke always going to be the person to bring balance to the force? It was Anakin that was going to bring balance. Well, I'm talking even when you look at four, five, and six, like certain people were supposed to be more powerful Jedis, and it's not necessarily linked to their training. Yes and no. Like, yeah, he was prophesied to be the one. And then, like, before Disney took over, when Obi-Wan was really young, he was so weak originally that he almost didn't become a Jedi. But that, that was kind of washed away when Disney bought it. But now I feel... I have more acceptance to it because there was a story of when Luke was training some younglings 
And he say, he phrased it like it's not stronger in the force. It's being able to open the door to the force more easily than others. So not necessarily stronger, but being able to access it. Which I think it ties into spirituality more than anything. Like some people are more spiritual than others. And some people are more open to certain alternative methods to things than other people. Yeah. But I always thought it was interesting that they chose the blood because blood is so often supposed to be sterile. And we think of it when you have microbes in your blood or you have anything in your blood, that's not good. And that can lead to a lot of really bad things. It is very true. And a lot of people die from having microbes in their blood, in their circulatory system. Well, I think one of the things about these midichlorians is that they exist everywhere. They're in the plants. They're in every species. Just like microbes. You know, so they're, you couldn't have life without them. They're kind of ubiquitous. Just like microbes. To everything. And so the fact that, I, I think it's interesting to think of like, why would some person have a lot more than another person? Like if they're sentient beings, do they decide to go into a certain being more than another one? Hmm. I don't know. Or does that person just have the best, creating the best environment from them, for them? Well, right. I mean, and microbes are not magic. They have to travel and, you know, like we talked about, they eat, poop, and reproduce. You know, so how do they, you know, like, what's the mechanism of that? How do they get to all these different places? So I have a lot of questions. You can just watch it and be like, oh, he has more and he has more in the force and did more training or whatever it is. But I think when you get down to the science, to me, it starts to fall apart a little bit. Next episode, we'll get George Lucas on here and we'll pick apart his midichlorian theory of Jedi. I think a lot of people would tune in for that. All right, well, we'll call him up. He's on speed dial. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to him every weekend. Yeah. Biffles. Is that all we got on midichlorians and the galaxy far, far away? Yeah, well, I'd love to hear what people have to say about it. So comment. We'd love to uh, have a discussion about what you think. Yeah. Did it add to the series for you or does it, is it just a little too far out there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you're looking for more Star Wars micro moments, we do have a couple other blogs on our microbegales.com. One is on blue and green milk. So those are little recipes. Those are pretty good. You can turn them into cocktails or not. Up to you. Do we have any others on Star Wars? I feel like, oh, we have the Bad Batch. Yep. Yeah. So we have the Bad Batch of bacteria where we look at the mutations of the main squad of the Bad Batch and look at some of their mutations and how it relates to some of the microbes we have on this planet. That one's fun, too. Super fun to research that one too yeah that was a fun one too i think we did a podcast on that as well i think we did two maybe Man, i can't we just remember. cannot stop talking about star wars huh no nope anyways let's stop talking about star wars and move on to another book slash movie the martian This week's episode of The Micro Moment is brought to you by Zymo Research. Validate your workflow with Zymo Biomics Gut Microbiome Standard, an accurately quantified microbial community mimicking the human gut microbiome. Zymo's complete microbiome solutions have optimized methods for sample collection, 
nucleic acid extraction, library prep, and bioinformatics. You can find out more by visiting our website, zymoresearch.com. So yeah, I watched the movie The Martian a couple years ago, so I revisited it recently. And I want to start with a little synopsis of the movie for those that haven't seen it for a while or haven't seen it. So we have astronauts that are on a mission on Mars. They're the first people there, you know, doing things like living, performing experiments, etc. However, a surprise storm comes and Mark Watney, who's played by Matt Damon, is caught in it. And the rest of the team thinks he's dead and they have to escape the planet and head back to Earth. However, Mark is alive. Spoiler alert. Spoils. And he's been impaled in the abdomen. But he's able to remove the piece of metal, staple his wound shut, and now he starts planning his next steps. At this time in the movie, he has no way of communicating with his crew that he had escaped or earth for that matter but he does know that there's another mission going to mars in four years and he starts calculating well i need food for four years food and water and he has enough food rations to last a year maybe year and a half so he needs to plan or figure out a plan to make more food on a dead planet that is the aspect that i always wonder like if I was in a situation that was basically you're going to die, would I, would I have sort of the oomph to continue to try to fight for survival? Like we have so many movies that show that just, or there's so many situations where it seems like there's no way out except for death. And then somehow the human body finds a way to survive and tries so hard to think of it when there's seems logically there's none. Yeah. And to be alone by yourself for four years straight, yeah, I mean, we were all like basically alone for 18 months, but we weren't even that alone and we all like totally lost it. Yeah. That was completely alone and no Netflix. No Netflix to watch anything. Actually, no, in the movie, he does have TV shows to watch. There are shows oh. that are pre recorded on some hard drives. Oh, okay, okay. Well, at least he had that. Yeah. So, you know, he's scrounging around and he finds potatoes. In a box that's marked only for Thanksgiving. (laughs) It's only for Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's these 12 potatoes, and he starts, comes up a plan to plant these potatoes. And he cuts them up, and he plants them and gets to work. So Mark brings in a lot of Martian soil, fertilizes the soil with human poop from the astronauts, and figures out a way how to get water the water he needs because he's limited in water and it converts the hydrogen fuel that's left over to water. Although he almost blows himself up the first time. Mm, Yeah. Hydrogen's kind of combustible. Yeah. He starts and all of a sudden there's an explosion that throws him across the room. Next thing you know, he's growing potatoes and eats them until part of the hull fails and decompresses the room and ends up killing the potatoes. Luckily, at this time, he's figured out a way to communicate with NASA, and he needs to get to a ship before he runs out of food and hopefully gets rescued. And this is a little ship somewhere on Mars in preparation for the next mission. And another spoiler, he saved, 
and he goes back to Earth. Happy ending. Happy ending. Yeah, they're all crying and like hugging each other. They're hugging this guy that hasn't taken a shower in maybe a year. Fun stuff. I wonder what body odors like on space. In yeah, space, on I don't Mars. know. So the question here is, how accurate is the ability for him to grow the potatoes? Potatoes are pretty hardy. Yeah. If you're going to grow something on Mars, it's probably a potato. That actually kind of plays into it. So I won't touch on the nutritional aspect. Um, there are many people that have covered it, and I think it might be possible to live almost solely on potatoes. If he eats the potatoes with the limited rations he has, um, he may be a little deficient in nutrients, obviously, but it turns out that potatoes are more nutritious than I thought. And they have like a lot of vitamins and minerals in them. But they don't have any protein in them, do they? They have some protein. Some protein, enough to sustain a, a Matt Damon-sized man? Uh, well, by the end of the movie, he's pretty emaciated looking, so I said he was going to be deficient in nutrients. It Definitely. wasn't perfect. Yeah. So he only ate potatoes. I mean- he, Oh, and he had his rations. Yeah, he also had his rations. I think if you supplement those rations along with the potatoes, you could stretch it out for maybe four years. Was he the botanist on the crew, and that's how he knew how to do all that stuff? Yeah, he was talking into a data log, and he's like, luckily for me, and he holds up a, a little pamphlet. He's like, I'm the botanist. He says <laughs> his name and the botanist underneath. So first, let's take a look at the water. So like I said, there's- there's not enough water on the planet, obviously, and he needs to find a way to make it. Well, he has this liquid hydrogen and he has air in the room where he plants, where he's planting the potatoes. He ends up burning the hydrogen and it reacts with the oxygen to create water. And there you go. You have irrigation. We see this all the time here on Earth. Maybe one of the best examples is when you burn gas like propane or butane. Uh, you see condensation forming. Well, that's because the gas molecule changes during the reaction. It breaks and hydrogens on the molecule break off and interact with the oxygen in the air, and that makes water. And this isn't the only way that you can make water. At work, I need to make sure we have chambers that are anaerobic for anaerobic bacteria, and they use a catalyst like palladium, which reacts with- What's palladium? It's a It's a type of metal. Oh, so we pump hydrogen purposely into the chambers and it reacts with any oxygen that comes into the chamber to form water. And oh. that's how we get, how we remove any excess oxygen from anaerobic chambers. What do you do with the water? You suck it out? Well, the more sophisticated ones have a dehumidifier built in. Mm. Um, some others, uh, you have to change out the catalyst more regularly because the water starts forming on the catalyst. Huh. You taught me something new about microbiology. That doesn't happen too often. You just throw it into an oven for an hour or two, bake it off, throw it back in, you're good to go. Interesting. So in short, this part checks out. Next is the soil. Apparently the Martian soil has aspects that can sustain life. Analogs of Martian soil have been made and have been used to grow plants, including potatoes, and even Heinz made a ketchup from tomatoes grown in the soil. Really? Why? How did they Heinz to do that? Why would they want to? Just to say that they did it. Huh, okay. And then what do they sell it in a ketchup bottle, like Mar Martian ketchup? Something like that. 
but I don't know if they actually sold it or if it's just a big publicity stunt. They must have sold it. I bet you that must have sold for like a gazillion dollars. Yeah. They dye it a color. They must have dyed it Martian color too. No, I think it's still red. Oh, I guess that's kind of Martian color. Such as the soil on Earth, there are nutrients that are lacking in that soil, which you can supplement with fertilizer. And we commonly use fertilizer on Earth. This checks out. But this is the issue that we run into. Because the fertilizer that Mark uses is human poop. Mm -hmm, Not cow manure. No. Now, this part I'm not exactly sure on. And if I had more time, I'd probably try to research it even further. But plants need nitrogen, obviously. But they can only use it in forms such as ammonia, nitrates, and nitrites. Yep, that checks out. To get this, they form a symbiotic relationship with nitrogen-fixing bacteria, which convert nitrogen in the air to these forms, and the plant can use it. Mm -hmm. The most common kind is rhizobium. Yep. But in human feces, there are some ammonia, nitrite, and nitrate. But are they at the levels that could support growth? I'm not sure that they are. I do know that there are some manure out there that is high in nitrogen, but the levels vary depending on the species that it's taken from. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are gut bacteria even that can perform nitrogen fixation. Like what? I was trying to look. I couldn't find the species. Mm. Again, if I had more time and dived even deeper, I probably could, but I have three topics to cover, so I can only cover so much. I know. We're doing a lot. We're doing a lot this episode. But there are also others that break these forms down and we absorb the ammonia that is made in the gut and convert it to urea and screen in the urine. So in conclusion, do we produce the right kinds of and amounts of nitrogen? I'm unsure. I'm leaning towards no, but we can just try it at home and see what happens. No, no, don't do that. If anyone knows, write in and tell us like, do we produce the right amounts and kinds of nitrogen to sustain plant growth? Yeah, but please don't try it at home. No. (laughs) Next, let's look at the microbial composition. Are there going to be microbes in poop? Maybe? Let me explain. You mean living microbes? Yes. Ah. So Mars has no atmosphere, or very little of it. So a lot of solar radiation comes through. However, the poop in the movie are stored in a bag that looks like it's made of some sort of foil, which is then placed in a big, thick box. There are multiple barriers to the feces, and I believe that this is enough to stop a lot of the solar radiation. So this is a check for microbes still being alive. Got to get those nitrogen-fixing microbes to the plants, though. Mm. Next, temperature conditions. Are these microbes going to survive? Well, the average temperature of Mars is negative 60 degrees Celsius, which is close to the temperature that we store fecal samples for further testing, especially if for microbial testing. A lot of research, uh, like universities and also fecal consortiums, like companies that buy people's poop to make fecal microbiome transplants, they will freeze at minus 80 on dry ice until they, they can process that poop. And do microbes die? Yes. But you still have a good chunk that survive. So you can culture out plenty of bacteria if you store it at minus 80, like, immediately. Huh. Okay. So we have minus 60, which is close to the temperature that we store them. However, the temperature on Mars can get up to 20 Celsius, which is almost 70 degrees Fahrenheit near the equator. And Mars has day and night cycles. 
So I'm expecting there to be significant temperature fluctuations on the site that he's living in. And if the astronaut's poop is exposed to these temperatures, the poop will freeze the over and over, which is likely to kill most, if not all, the bacteria in the poop over time. Mm, yeah. Unless he put in some sort of uh, temperature control conditions. Right. I think this one it leans towards no microbes being in the poop, although I'm not 100% sure. We'll never know unless we go to Mars and start putting our poops in bags and then try to grow potatoes. Right. Now, there is a reason why we don't like to use poop when farming, well, particularly human poop. Besides that, it's human poop. Well, yes. There's a good chance that there are harmful microbes in it. Oh, that's true. Even if a person is healthy, they may have these species, and by ingesting these microbes, you can get sick. Like Clostridium. Yep. Or E. coli. Even microbes that are in your gut normally can make you sick because it may bring these microbes to areas of the body where they're not supposed to be. And again, make you sick. Now, I have heard people say that you can freeze-dry poop in the Martian environment because that would kill the harmful bacteria. I'm not 100% sure this would kill all bacteria because there are harmful microbes out there that can form spores and protect themselves from the environment. Mm-hmm although they may be killed under solar radiation. Another way to remove harmful bacteria apparently from human feces is to compost the feces over several months, which is a good way to weed out pathogens. And enrich microbes that are good at breaking down whatever in your compost. Right. However, Mark didn't do this, so there's a chance he's getting a stomach full of pathogens. Silly, Mark. Last consideration. The microbes needed, can they grow in the soil? Can they grow with the potatoes? Is there the right nutrients for them to do so? And are they tolerant to air? Yeah, it goes back to that arms race we were talking about. Right. They're adapted for you, to your gut, not the soil. Remember, these microbes are coming from your gut. And there are sections of your gut, especially your small intestines, no air or very little. Mm. And they can't survive in air. Hopefully those nitrogen-fixing microbes are a yes to all those or else it's a no-go to use the nitrogen-fixing microbes to grow the potatoes. So, is this feasibly possible by Matt Damon? I think it is slightly possible, however, highly unlikely. There are a lot of variables that need to work in his favor, which is not uncommon to see in movies and books. I haven't even included why gardeners say about the depth of the soil not being enough, the need for to sprout the potatoes. The potatoes were not cured, just to name a few conditions. So to be able to grow these and not get sick, I wouldn't put my money on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all very logical. I'd, uh, I'd agree with you there. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie, Julie? I did. It would not have been as good a movie if he died and they just panned to his dead body in the middle of a, of a dead potato field. But... For the next two hours. As it decomposes. <laughs> As it decomposes. I don't even wouldn't decompose. There's no micro. Yeah, would he? Yeah, he may not decompose. Well, not in two hours, he won't. <laughs> so then he just might sit there forever. <laughs> the mummifies. Yeah. I thought it was a really interesting movie. I, I, I liked it. You know, I think we're all just fascinated. Could it, could it happen someday that we try to live on the, another planet? And what would that be like? Oh, I think that catches a lot of people's imagination. Also, it's like total props when you make a movie and it's basically one person by themselves the whole time. Like, that's hard to do. There's like 
kind of no one else to interact with and it's just one person, it's tough. Like The Revenant. Yeah. Oh, man, that movie. That movie probably has some micro moments because he ate so much raw meat. Yeah. I'm not going to watch that movie again. Yeah, we're not going to watch that movie again. It's two hours of, let's see Leonardo DiCaprio be tortured. Right, so he can get an Oscar. Poor Leo. <laughs> no, thank you. Anyways, shall we do one more before we wrap it up for this episode? Sure. What's the topic we're going to cover next? I feel like I feel like we need a little Star Trek in this episode. Some Star Trek. I I think we need some Star Trek. I could talk to you about some exciting tardigrades. Ugh. I do hate this micro moment, but go ahead. Wait, wait, wait. Let's clarify. You don't hate tardigrades. No, no, I totally love tardigrades. I hate what Discovery did to tardigrades. Spoiler. (laughs) They tortured him. It was mean. And they made him way too big. Tardigrades are not that big. They're very powerful at the size that they're at. They don't need that big to be that big to do what they do. Well, I think it was interesting because I remember watching Discovery. This is start from Star Trek Discovery the first time. They talk about tardigrades. They talk about mycelial networks. And I'm like, I'm like, do people even know what they're talking about? Or do they just take these names and just apply them to space? Yeah, it's definitely the latter. <laughs> yeah, let me let me back up. So if you don't know what a tardigrade is, Um, You might have heard of water bears or moss piglets. They're arguably the cutest microbe. They look like teddy bears with a bunch like extra legs and a a funny like face. And so, but they're like one millimeter when they're grown. These are microscopic, but they are renowned for their durability and resiliency. So they can live for decades where as a human, like we talked about, in the Martian, humans can't survive for like a hundred hours without water. A tardigrade can can live without water and food for decades, like thirty years. They have a process that they can go through where they take all the water out of their body and they can basically lie dormant for a long, long time until the conditions are right again. They can survive in the most inhospitable environments. Um, so they are considered an extremophile, which we've talked about a few times on the podcast and, and on our on our blogs. But they they live everywhere. They're in Antarctica, in the deserts, on ice sheets, they're in the ocean, so they can survive salt water, but and also the pressure in kind of the in the deepest, darkest parts of the of the ocean where there's a lot of pressure, we can find tardigrades. Um, they're in freshwater, they're on mountaintops. And you could even find them yourself in your own yard, like in the moss and, and lichen around your home. You, If you had a microscope, you might be able to, to find them. So they're everywhere. I've even known people that were able to find them like on their balcony railings, like on the second floor apartment in an urban place. They're just everywhere. Yeah, I'm going to get myself a microscope and I'm going to find some. Yeah, let's do it. Bucket list. Yeah, so they're really, really fascinating. And so that Star Trek would would kind of borrow this real life kind of tank of a microorganism uh, and turn it into a, a space thing is kind of interesting. 
they can survive in space. They have shown that that real tardigrades can live in the vacuum of space. But only for a certain amount of time. Yes. And they they can withstand pretty high amounts of radiation, which, of course, you know, we can barely stand any. So, you know, if we could figure out how they do it, it would be pretty interesting. And so I think, you know, there are people that are studying. They have a special protein um, that allows them to kind of protect themselves. And and so they're they're really, really hard to kill. So when you bring them into the uh, Star Trek universe, um, they bring it in with a, now the tardigrades are three meters and they are big, scary. Yeah, they made them so terrifying. They, yeah, and they could climb everywhere. They killed people in Star Trek. Tardigrade would never. And they, they have like long, sharp claws, but those claws not only can go through flesh, uh, it can go through like the hull of a ship. And of course, there are the folks that, you know, want to weaponize that. And so they were doing experiments to try and figure out, well, you know, do they have some sort of material on their claws that we could weaponize and 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 figure out what is it some sort of, you know, acid or something like that, that makes that happen? And how do we get our, our hands on it? But sort of, you know, and, and also the armor on it. So they shoot it with, they can't kill it. They can't even come close to killing it. Like every, every weapon that they have just kind of sloughs off. But what they do discover is that the tardigrades, they live and they survive based on the mycelial network, these spores that come from the mycelial network. So they live in symbiosis with the mycelial network. And somehow, which is sort of way far-fetched to me when I first heard it, I still it still just doesn't quite work for me, but they figure out a way to move their ships via this mycelial network. And so if you don't know what a mycelial network is, um, if you think about the mushrooms that pop up out of the ground, or uh, those are fruits of the mycelial network and the mycelial network is living in the ground and basically all over the place, but it's like this stringy stuff that connects to roots. And so the thought of a mycelial network that kind of goes across the universe is kind of interesting because there are some people who say that that mycelial network that's underneath, which is basically a fungal network um, that connects plants to each other. But there are some that say that that network is is vast and we don't necessarily understand all of the things that the mycelial network is connecting and communicating um, and so it's it's still a little bit of a mystery to us here on earth but they took it to a way big scale in star trek and they even show it at some points in the series where it's this kind of ethereal the colors are weird and like it's just this filamenty kind of place but the ships can travel through it like the tardigrades can. And so they want to find a way to harness the way that the tardigrade can go, you know, vast distances over the mycelial network with their navigationals, whatever they have in in their makeup. So they harness that. And of course, it takes its toll on the tardigrade. And, you know, they make it, you know, they capture a tardigrade, they put it in a glass 
cage and they hook stuff up to it and it makes sounds and it sounds like it's suffering and but it can jump the ship to different points in the network so it was kind of far-fetched to me but I, I don't think people I mean people don't understand how you know warp drive works either so I think this was just another thing to most people that they didn't necessarily understand but I don't know what do you guys think I mean I think it's ridiculous. Can't really say like it just feels ridiculous. Like you expect all these spores to be everywhere in the galaxy, and you could just travel. Uh, does does lend a, a hand to the panspermia theory, though? It, it does. That life exists everywhere and has stemmed from an initial seed across the galaxies. They're like cutting through like space time, jumping through this network somehow. I think it's too far of a reach. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love I love when people use microbes and their power, but Star Trek and torturing tardigrades, I mean, those things should just never have happened. Star Trek is not about torturing other beings. It's always about understanding and coming up with compromises and finding peace and not torturing or killing other beings. Well, let's end it on a high note for the tardigrades because they do find that after they have captured it and used it for a while, that it does what a tardigrade in real life would do if there was no water. It tucks its head and its legs in, turns itself into a little ball, somehow excretes all of the water, and it has a process that it kind of develops a a matrix that surrounds all of its organs and it goes basically into this uh, sort of hibernation um, waiting for better conditions and so in the end the captain or she she wasn't a captain at that point but she decided that it was torture and she wasn't going to do it anymore so she feeds it some spores and they do extract the DNA somehow goes from the tardigrade into one of the like the science officer or something. So he ends up being able to do the spore drive thing and, and move the ship around. But the tardigrade that they captured, they did like sprinkled some spores on it and they let it out of the ship. Um, and she says, you know, I hope that, you know, it enjoys its, you know, comes back to life because we've given this spores and its freedom that it loves its freedom. So they put it out in space and they show it kind of come back to life, unfurl itself, you know, itself. And he looks like the cute little, not, he's not really cute because he's sort of scary looking, but he kind of gets this blue lightning behind him and he like zooms off to someplace else and he's perfectly fine. So as a, there's a happy ending, at least for that tardigrade and for discovery, they are still able to use the spore drive because in the captivity of the uh, tardigrade, they figured out what makes it work and how to, how to have a human actually do it. So a little more far-fetched that uh, you'd be able to get tardigrade DNA somehow melded into a human so that it would have properties of a tardigrade but that's a whole nother different issue yeah stamets does not become indestructible he needs water and food and and doesn't get those things but he somehow can use the spore drive to bounce around the mycelial network you want to think of something scary is a uh, a life-size tardigrade 
that was basically indestructible and can live absolutely anywhere. Sounds like a much better way to get to work. Giant tardigrade <laughs> through the mycelium network. Yeah, just pop in and out wherever you want to go. Mm-hmm. Faster than warp drive. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that concludes our episode one on the micro moment of science fiction. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please go ahead and rate and review and tune in next week when we'll give you part two of the micro moment of science fiction, where we will talk about another Andy Weir book. We'll talk about two more Star Trek episodes. Well, maybe three. Oh, yeah. It's three episodes of Star Trek across two different series. Yep. And we'll also talk about microbes that have an interesting way to use DNA. Yeah, so tune in next time for that. And until then... Love your microbes. Love your guts. Make your microbes love you lots. Bye. 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 Bye.